The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 56 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great Joe Tomino. Joe Tomino is probably best known as the co-founder and drummer for Dub Trio. Dub Trio uh, has many albums out. The discography is pretty vast, so definitely check all their records out. They were also the backing band for Mike Patton's Peeping Tom, and they spent quite a few years as the backing band for the pop reggae artist Modest Yahoo!, uh, Joe was just through Pittsburgh here a couple weeks back with his improv band, uh, Birth, which he's had for many years, and they were on a tour, a couple-week tour here. They stopped here at Con Alma in Pittsburgh. I got to check it out. It was absolutely amazing. Beautiful compositions, incredible playing, very creative, very adventurous, but also always attuned to be tasteful and respectful of the music. So we definitely start a conversation with that, and then we get into our usual gear talk and wherever the conversation goes. This is a really fun one i hope you enjoy let's check it out joe tomino so i after seeing you play was that last week yeah i guess it was a week ago today um with birth and then we talked okay. briefly about you know the idea of practicing improvisation so before i hopped on with you i had to go play literally three minutes of solo drums and it reminded okay. me well a couple questions but it also reminded me how cathartic it is to just sit down and just tap the instrument and make sounds and not worry about what comes out. Um, which, so thank you for reminding me to do that. But then as I was playing, I started like critiquing myself. So mm-hmm. I'm going to come right out of the gates. How do yeah. you approach improv so that you don't critique yourself too much? Or when is critique important in that process? Well, it's interesting because if if you're gonna if you sit, like for me when I sit down on the drums and if I just improvise and just play, whether it's before a practice session or just with other people, um, obviously you know you try to be as much in the moment as possible and not in the head and being just sort of objective playing, but it also helps to for me like when I record my practice sessions. I try to save the critiquing, you know, or the listening back to see what came out. Because, you know, I try to be in it as much as possible in the moment and not think about the next thing that's going to come. Just let the brain go to the hands and the hands go to the drums without. And then that leads to one thing. It's very linear, you know, whatever whatever the idea is, the concept is. But um, I think that I try, try to save the critiquing for uh, if it's been recorded, you know, whether it's with a, somebody else or solo. And I don't always record my practice sessions. So I think it's just a habitual thing. You know, you get into the point of uh, you do something every day and it, you fall into a way of doing it. So for me, it's like uh, if, when I do sit down and improvise, uh, whether it's before a practice session or if I just have five minutes to play and I haven't played all day, I can just go down in the basement at any time and just play. I just let it come out, you know, and, I, and and maybe maybe I have maybe there's inspiration, or I saw or heard something, or I'm just drawn to it, you know, you know whether it's a groove or something freeform, and I just, you know, obviously monkey mind, you know, the mind starts to go all over the place. You start to think about maybe maybe get inspired, or maybe you're like, well, this isn't grooving, or well, this is cool. How can I turn this into something? 
And that, you know, that's cool too. But for me, I try to save the subjective part of it for uh, when I finish the improv or the, when I finish playing. So, it's going to always come in, you know, you can't help it. But it's sort of like meditation, you know, when you're sitting there in meditation, you are just observing, right? You're sort of a, uh, an observer of, of your mind, of yourself. And the, the thoughts come in and the idea is that, you know, I, I, I liken it to like uh, clouds coming in or a train goes by. You're just observing these thoughts or you, you're observing the clouds go by and then you see what they are and then they just pass and then you just it keeps going, you know, in a linear way, you know. Does that happen when you're performing too? Do you try to get into that meditative state? Yeah, I mean, I try to specifically if it's if it's something where there's where it's improvisation. If I'm playing a tune that I played a hundred times, or if I'm on a gig or tour where it's like sort of the same tune every night, yeah, it's cool to be try to get into a meditative state, maybe with the groove or the feel or the pocket. But it's kind of, if it's going to be the same thing, where it's the same worked out fill, or you're playing the tracks. Maybe a little bit harder to do that, but when I'm improvising, specifically like you were speaking about uh, the birth show, when I when I'm doing those gigs, you know, a lot of times I I see videos of myself playing, and I'm I have my eyes closed, you know, and we're as much as we're playing composed pieces, there's inherently a lot of improvisation in the piece, so. And a lot of it is, you know, audio, audio cues or like just because we played the tune so many times, we know sort of like a thing that's going to take us to the next part or how to get to the next section or how to end. So, you know, for me, when I close my eyes, that's sort of a sign that I'm definitely really in it. And I don't need to rely on any other stimulus like approval from, you know, watching someone's hands or like, here we go. Or like, if my eyes are closed, you could you know, you can pretty much count on I'm pretty much in that state where I'm just letting anything come out that that is appropriate for the music, hopefully. Mm -hmm. How do yeah. you critique improvisation? Like, what are you listening for when you listen back? Um, different. It depends on the style of improvisation. I mean, I guess for me, it's about if I'm playing with other people, it's about, well someone plays something or I play something and someone reacts and it's like, well, how did that idea that we came up with together, how did that idea that I played off against their idea, how did that develop? Like, did I take it far enough? Was it working against what they said? Was I, was I playing too much on top of what they said? Was I trying to do too much of what they were already doing? You know, was I, you know, these are all questions that I could ask myself. Um, <clears throat> you know, I feel like if you do it enough, you listen back, you're like, well, yeah, that was pretty good. Or well, we really tapped into something. You know, it could be a collective thing where like, if you're listening back to, if you're doing, uh, maybe if you're doing a recording session, even if you're playing like standards and, you know, you're following changes or if it's completely free, you can sort of follow the arc and everyone sort of knows like we really hit it on that course or we really, that idea really peaked, you know, we, it's a, almost like a visceral thing. Like you could really more of a feeling and less of like uh, a mind thing, less, less, you know, 
calculated or, or um, in, you know, empirical. It's maybe not as measurable with like data points, but more like uh, uh, intuition and feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, here's the big question for me. <laughs> the vocabulary for improvising, where does it come from? Like, how do you know what, what to bring from your bag of tricks? You know, mm-hmm. Like, what, what gets brought into the gig? Right. Well, to me, that again, that goes sort of group specific. Like, you know, when you start a group, when you start a band, if you're playing standards, you know, and like, you know, like say like the Keith Jarrett trios play the standards, right? Um, they have a way to interpret. I mean, obviously you're going in from an individual, right? They all have their own way of approaching their instrument, but also they're, you know, it's coming from like tradition as well. So you build upon the language that comes before you and then you have a way of interpreting that in, any, in your instrument. And then you have a way of, of staying within a framework or breaking the framework within that group, whether it's a trio or whatever the size of the group is. So, so if you break it down to me, to me, you break it down to like the individual, you build up a language, you know, and for me, like I'm coming from a lot of different things, you know, my roots are, you know, so many different elements, you know, rock and, reggae and hip hop and avant-garde jazz and classical. So those are all, these, these are all my influences. And then when, I guess I could just, again, to take it to birth, because we're, we're speaking about that. When we started, you know, we, uh, that group was very specifically into sort of avant New York jazz circa like late nineties, early two thousands. And also like the whole, when electronic music was um, breaking in the late nineties, specifically like uh, avant, you know, sort of more experimental, like uh, electronic music, like someone like, you know, I don't know, Richard D. James or a square pusher, Amon Tobin, that was all sort of new, you know, in like the uh, late nineties. So that language of birth started from, 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 uh, from being uh, inspired by those sort of sounds. So we had our individual language. Josh, the saxophonist, is definitely coming from more of a traditional swinging inside jazz, um, uh, you know, straight, more straight ahead. I mean, he's been, he's in a lot of different things, but that was sort of his background, you know, and then, you know, I kind of maybe brought more of the electronic thing. So we had this sort of like common language that we were listening to and so within that, when we started improvising, because that band just started improvising, we didn't write any tunes. It was just like, let's go in the basement and just play and see what comes up. And it started as a, as a duo before we got a bass player. So we built up a language, a concept of what was what would the, what the band was going to be, what could work. And so within that, being being able to draw upon those influences uh, that we are listening to at the time and bring our uh, individual and collective influences into the improv. Uh, that was, that was what the language was. And so within that, I feel like beauty, you know, to me, the beauty is like when you could play anything that you've been in, influenced by 
from your entire career as a musician, from being from when you came up to where you are right now, if you could play that, and it could just be coming from a place of like honesty and serving like the moment and not being like, check out me, I could do this this style or I could do this lick, this thing. When you could just be really honest about just playing whatever you want at any time, man, that's a real true blessing. Like, you know, not only is it a blessing to, to, the, to you as an individ, individual and to the listener, but also to the music that you're playing with that group, you know? Not every group calls for that, you know? Obviously, you, you know, when you're playing funk tunes, even if you're improvising on a solo, it's like, you're probably not gonna throw too much, you know, up, I don't know, you know, Max Roach or Sonny Murray or, or I don't know what, you know what I mean? So, you, you know, you, you sometimes you have to stay in a framework, but to taking it to, again to the birth thing, that band built up a language and there's so much in you know freedom intrinsic in the in the in the language and in the composition that I really do feel like I could kind of play anything. I could play reggae, I could play a one drop, or I could play, you know, a drum and bass groove, or I could play com- completely like, you know, wall of sound, lots of notes and texturally, you know, whatever. Um so it's sort of like a understanding, even if you don't talk about it, because we never really talked about it too much. It just kind of happened naturally. Like uh, it's it's about the language. Different groups have different language and different approaches. And within that, you know, you try to stay, you don't, you don't have to, but I try to like respect the music to stay within that dialect, that language that the music for the band uh, has, has built up. Was there any discussion of like the dynamic of the band? Because I was really surprised how controlled the dynamics were. Was it was it from the very very beginning we're going to go acoustic, like minimal amplification? Was that discussed? Oh yeah. First, I thought you were talking about like dynamic, like who's who's taking the lead. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. So so volume, like dynamics. Yeah. Um. It's interesting. I don't, I don't remember that being a thing. I mean, when we were, you know, we were pretty young. Josh was probably like 18 and I may have been 20 or maybe Josh was 17 and I was 19. Um, so when you're that young, you know, yes, there were dynamics and we played, you know, soft and loud everywhere in between. But I think as the compositions came to fruition and as they developed over the years, the dynamics sort of, um, unless they were really spoken, uh, talked about, like, and dictated, I think they just, they just, they kind of came out as we, as we played the songs over and over and over, like, it had just more of like a natural progression, you know, it wasn't always like, all right, guys, this is definitely going to be the quiet part, and then we're going to take it up, and we're going to crescendo, and we're going to go really loud here, it's just like, it's sort of like when you look at a classical piece, you know, someone's up there conducting it, they're leading like the way that they interpret the score, even though the score might have dynamics, you can follow a score of different conductors and they're, it's not always on the, on the money of like how the arc of the dynamics go, or even like the tempo, you know, of how the, where the time is. So um, I feel like specifically that band, that's just something that happens naturally. And usually that's another thing you know to talk about is like 
it's all about listening. You know what I mean? If someone is like, and obviously as drummers, we're really in charge, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm always in charge, but you know, the drummers obviously starts playing quietly. You can, the other players can make a conscious decision to play loud and like have this juxtaposition or they like relate and they're going to bring it down. So, but I think it's, it's a big part of that band is listening. You know, it's like, if someone brings it down or someone clicks on a distortion pedal, you know, chances are you're going to react and play more intensely or more aggressively, you know, or if they click off the distortion pedal, if I automatically switch to, or if I start improvisation with brushes, you know, unless you're really making a conscious choice to the other players to like really go against it and play something really sort of aggressive, the the timbre sort of dictates and even the even the music, if it's a maybe a pretty section, maybe you're not gonna usually approach it. It's really melodic and beautiful. You know, I'm not gonna be probably bashing. So the music dictates, the listening dictates, the timbres dictate. Whether it's a you know a pedal or a, for a drummer, you know what you're using your hands or a stick or a brush or a, a mallet. So there's a lot of elements to that. With that band, there are some there are some notes where like, okay, we're gonna hit these. This measure is gonna be loud. We're to bring it back down, but very little of that. I think it's a lot about listening and developing developing it over time. The the, the music dictates really. Mm-hmm. So how, did, how have those arrangements solidified? Like, is it? I'm thinking like, as you made some some palette decisions for each song, like this one, I'm going to have some some metallic instruments, or I'm going to use brushes. Like, does it for you? Does it change each time you perform, or how quickly do you find your palette for each piece? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I try to have as much on board. I feel like it might with that again with that band. It's, every band's sort of different, but like with, with staying at birth with that band, um, I'll always have some sort of like auxiliary percussion, some sounds like whatever it is, something usually metallic and maybe something wood, and and then I'll obviously have a, a bunch of different um, you know choices to, as far as sticks and ballots and brushes and all that. So there's all these choices I can make. And, you know, I play electronics in that band, too. So I'll have some sort of uh, electronic setup. And sometimes that changes uh, before a tour. Like, if we go out, I'm just going to, like, go down and grab these things. I'm going to grab this pedal or that pedal. The stick bag is usually what it is. It's got, it's got a lot of stuff in there. So that doesn't always change too much unless I accru- acquire or accrue something. And I want to try it out on tour or a gig. But... But um, those other things on the peripheral uh, mind change tour to tour, gig to gig, and um, and so I'll and you know you maybe you fall into like a like this tune might start. I've been starting with this, and this sort of is really working. So I'll explore uh, I'll explore that every night. With I'll start with similar thing, you know, a similar concept. Um, Again, that's maybe more tour to tour. Like if you're developing something over uh, a multiple dates on the road, um, 
but it doesn't it's not always the same like uh tour to tour like you know i might bring out different instruments and like i might start a piece you know one day with electronics or one tour with electronics but the next time maybe it's just brushes you know or so and then also there was a thing that burst our door doing uh since we got back together uh, a few years ago um because there was like a 12-year hiatus where we didn't play at all but uh as we start improvising on gigs and um that's something we never really did like complete improv like no tunes that's something we never really did on the bandstand uh, that's always like was more reserved for the beginning of the band the genesis of like how we started playing together so we started improvising um on gigs like maybe two or three improvisations in a night and then and then that's like anything goes that's like jeremy might hit a long tone and then i'll be inspired to like grab something or i'll just grab a couple of things and set them on the drums and i'll either start or wait till someone starts and be like okay this is gonna work or i'll listen and that's not gonna work and i'll grab something else so again staying in the moment trying to be trying to listen to what the what the moment or what the music or what the other people are doing how that affects your, my choice you know um so yeah i don't know if that answers your question yeah how is the the music presented to you is it a lead sheet or is it a score how do you how do you get it yeah we all kind of write out uh like uh sometimes this lead sheets Josh tends to write in lead sheets. Um, Jeremy, Jeremy's a, you know, he works a lot as a, a composer. He's classically trained and conducts orchestra suit. His are more score-like. Uh, mine are, mine are definitely like, they're written out, uh, my pieces. So like, I'll write out one person's parts and then like, you know, ABC and then the next person's ABC. So it's less of like, a linear thing like lists like like sax and drums and i don't think anyone's ever really written out a drum part uh maybe they'll have like an idea for a beat or a concept but a lot of times i, I feel like i'm just reading lead sheets and when i present my pieces to them they're more of like here's this section here's a section here's this melody you know and then we sort of like either play it as is and a lot of times people come with compositions and we develop them as a band, you know? It's not like, this is the way it is, and this is the way I want you to do it, and that's how it's gonna be. Like, I feel like when when you put those sort of limitations on a, on a band, because it's not like one dude hires other improvisers, other improvisers to play their music, because that's a thing too, and that's cool. But when you, when, when you start putting those limitations and start telling people what to play, it's not really, I feel like it's not really a, a a band, a collective anymore. That's how I feel when I when I play in certain ways. I mean, I'm cool to play something, you know, uh, the way someone wants it to be played. But I think there's beauty in like letting people play the way they want to play and the way they hear something. And if it doesn't work, maybe you could suggest something else. Just say, no, that's really the way I, I want to do it. Again, then then it develops. You know, new pieces develop on the road, or having played them on and on and on. They take even still pieces that we were playing 
together in the early 2000s, even the late 90s, some of the early pieces uh, sort of are different every time. There's, you know, they, they still different approaches and that's what keeps things fresh, you know, to me. I mean, uh, yeah. So this recent run was a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, almost two weeks. Yeah. So yeah. how did how did things evolve during that course of the first show versus their last show? Well, the first show, um, everyone sort of flew in the night before and we didn't have time to rehearse because I had a gig and someone else was doing something. So basically the first show was in Cleveland and it was on the bandstand. So we hadn't played in like, you know, months and, uh, you know, it's a language and it's like, you know, it's also like reading, trying to remember the, the some of the form, you know, some of the tunes. So it was almost like a paid rehearsal. But we've been playing together so long that there's a trust and there's a language and there's a, you know, it's never really going to fall flat with that band. I feel like no one's going to fall flat. If someone does something and there's a mistake, quote unquote mistake, uh, it's it's going to work itself out within you know a measure or, or the, within a section. So uh, it was kind of like a refamiliarization of like, all right, this is the vibe. This is where we're at. This is where we're at individually. This is where we're at in the moment. And then you know within that tune, because that was like maybe like an hour long set. And it sort of solidified, like we had talked about the night before, the day before, like what pieces we want to do on the tour. Like we should maybe kind of listen to them or like pull them out of the, all of our charts that we have. Kind of like, kind of come in somewhat rehearsed. We may have actually talked about it like on a group chat and said like, okay, we're going to do this piece, that piece, and maybe got an order together. So... We kind of had a core group of tunes, but, you know, one of the nights we did, it was like three sets. So it was like we had to pull a bunch of tunes. So maybe we were listening to tunes that we didn't do on, on some of the earlier dates in the van on the drives. Oh, yeah. So remember that tune? That happens like six times. And then there's the break. And then we, you know, kind of relearning the, 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 the uh, composition and the arrangement. But um, also, so there was a core set of tunes, but... Within that, again, the beautiful thing is like night to night, the improv that's in the tune, the sections, whether we improvise out of like an A section over a set number of bars or if it's chord changes or, or a bass line and a drum beat, that changes night to night. Maybe how long it goes on or the arc of the solo or the dynamic of the section, you know, or sometimes even the way we get into the next section Sometimes it could be like, it could disintegrate. And then I'll set up the time by hitting two chord notes. And it's like, that's that's the chord note. One, two, boom, that's the downbeat. Or maybe it's a cue. Maybe Josh plays a, a pickup, like a, a horn line that kind of sets the tempo, but sort of like a big shift in uh, tempo change. Or it's a, if it's a dynamic thing, we all end, we're all playing really loud and, and I'll just end the tune with a shift to bop. Like everyone's listening, you know. Um, so listening really dictates how the composition changes night to night. Um, but for this tour, it was definitely a set of like maybe seven, six, seven tunes with maybe three or four, two or three improvs within that. 
And then if we had to bring some, you know, other tunes that we hadn't played, we would listen on the way to the gig to get them up to where we kind of remembered the form. And then they're just there, you know, once we play them once, even if they don't go perfectly, they're going to work out, you know? So, um, they develop night to night really upon just, again, going back to listening. That's, I feel that's such an important part that whether you're improvising, like going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, whether you're listening as an individual to yourself playing in the moment and just choosing how to react linearly without subjectivity, without judging, just being like, yeah, really like doing this thing now. Maybe I just go right here without trying to be, uh, Make it, making too many choices, just letting the brain just like tell you where to go with the heart, tell you where to go in the next moment. Or as a group, you know, playing this piece, we've been doing this piece and this is sort of how it's been going. But this is how I feel today and this is where I'm going to put it. Let's see if they react. If not, it's cool. I'll go where they go or maybe we'll be at ends. Maybe this, this, this you know, meeting of someone doing something different this night's going to take it to a different space different place which keeps it fresh you know what i mean have you guys ever had a bad gig like a bad set um uh, there's always things that make things challenging you know like something's not working in the monitor or but i feel like there's um something's out of your control maybe someone's having a bad day emotionally Mm -hmm. or physically you know and that might affect the music you could tell something's not totally where it has been or right but these things usually you can't control and it's just more of like approaching the music of like knowing that this is the situation that you're in like the last gig we did there was sort of like some sound issues and we started like sort of a half an hour later than we you know we were supposed to that we should have and you know there was an issue that really couldn't get worked out and you know it's just me speaking uh i was like in my head a little bit about like well this isn't right you know i i know there's something happening here and i could choose to be bummed out about it and let it affect the music or i could just be like well i've had plenty of gigs where stuff doesn't go the way it is you know whether it's the drums aren't do, you know, you're on a back line or the monitor mix isn't right or someone's in a bad mood and you just kind of let it be what it's going to be and hopefully it works out. So it's a long-winded way to answer your question. I mean, I, there's gigs that are better than others because we get to, we get to collectively to a certain point that we've gotten to in the past that you know where the music can get to. But every gig is going to be different. So I try not just speaking myself, I try not to be too judgmental of like, well, that gig wasn't really that good because I know we did a better one the night before last week or a year ago or that recording, that live thing. So maybe we don't always get to the same place and you always want to strive to be to the best place that you can musically, but, um, you just sort of take it for what it is. You know, I do like when you're improvising or when you're recording, even if it's improvised or not improvised music, you're capturing the moment. 
Um, and so every, every picture is just that moment. Every gig is, this, is just that moment. And it's going to be different no matter what, whether it's, again, improvising, playing the tracks, <coughs> or <coughs> practicing. <coughs> Excuse me. So just try to be honest with yourself and let it be what it's going to be. You know, I mean, some gigs are better than others. Some are. What is your um, approach to composing music for this project or for other projects? Well, yeah. I write primarily on keyboard mm-hmm. or piano um, and or bass. I mean, I'm, I'm not really going to be doing many gigs on either of those instruments, but I can, I know my way around both to where I can, I know, you know, harmony and chords and fingerings and things where I could figure things out and write on uh, those two instruments. So when I approach, you know, because I'm, a lot of bands that I planned that were my own bands that I would compose for, or if I'm doing a production thing where I'm writing uh, a song for someone or for something, I could primarily compose on those two instruments. So I'm basically either thinking of the language or the, or the concept that I, that either that I'm going for or that the music has been built upon, uh, whether it's a band or, you know, a groove or a concept, you know, cause if I'm writing like uh, an idea for like, a, like my group dub trio, it might be a little different than the way I'm thinking of composing than I would really for birth or a different band. Um, mm-hmm. So I might come up with like a melodic line on, on a, on a piano and I'll just write out that line and then I'll maybe think of like uh, either chords, like, like some sort of chordal structure that might work underneath that melody. Like what is that, the shape of that melody? What chords could I put underneath it that work alongside the melody? Or maybe I'll go the other way and start with a bass line, figure out, you know, a groove, a meter, a tempo. Maybe you can go like think about, well, this could be the drum beat, you know, this sort of works alongside this baseline or it kind of like works within and inside that baseline, maybe program that and then kind of get out the keyboard and start thinking about a melodic uh, line or, or, or even a a phrase like a loop. You could even be loop based and like, you know, program that and then think about something that could work on top of that loop. So building in terms of either it's usually for me, it's either building in terms of a loop, getting something down and then building on top of the loop, sort of like a hierarchy of like building layer layers or a linear thing of like, okay, this is a four bar phrase or an eight bar phrase and the melody is this long. And then maybe coming up with chords or, you know, bass notes that sort of uh, go along, you know, with, uh, with a chord or with the melody to to, uh, you know, to work with that structure, the melodic structure of the line. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't usually start with drums. I mean, 
sometimes in a, you know, I have a friend of mine that I write with, um, with sort of like a production, a production uh, duo. Uh, it's called Other Animal, my friend Jake Fader. And, you know, we're doing a lot of like composing. A lot of times it does start with the drums. Like we'll go in with like, we're going to do like this sort of like 60s psych thing, or we're going to do this reggae thing, like really like sort of specific, like, you know, Studio One, you know, early, you know, 60s, late 50s thing. Or we're going to do something like really like kind of 80s. You know, I'll go in like an approach tuning the kit or getting sounds. Like sometimes we go to tape or putting stuff on the drums or choosing how many mics to use, where to place the mics. So that, in those instances, it does start with the drums and the way they're mic'd or the way they're recorded or the way I'm uh, approaching them from a, a standpoint of playing the drums, tuning, physicality of like intention of how hard I'm hitting, how quiet I'm hitting for the way the mics are reacting. So it's different with every group, I would say, you know, um, definitely in a production standpoint, it starts, I guess, more with the drums, if I'm thinking about it. And then, but if I'm composing for a group, it's more sort of in the box or like with a baseline and I'll write out, write stuff out on a piece of paper and send it to somebody or, or just remember it and show somebody a line in a rehearsal or in a writing session. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. How do you know when a piece is done? <coughs> hmm. When it gets recorded. <laughs> even then it's not done, to be completely honest with you. Because even like, say like something like Dub Trio, like, you know, even that band has a lot of improvisation built into it. Um, so, or birth or, or and any other number of things. So, but like, so if it's, we record something and it's captured, people might know the groove. That's not really going to change. The form might not change too much. The sections might not change too much. The hits won't change. But there is sort of still that like arc of like, what happens in the piece, you know, even like something as simple as like, even if it's like a guitar solo in a song, the solos usually, yeah, some solos might not change night to night. And like people come to know guitar solos. Like if I go see or hear Pink Floyd, I want to be able to sing those beautiful David Gilmore melodies. He's probably not going to change those solos too much. And you rely on those. So maybe those kind of pieces don't change too much, but when a piece is done, um, I guess I, I don't really want it to be done. I want to do, I want to play tunes that sort of have these little things that change night to night. Like it's cool to play the tracks and to play 
behind a vocalist and rely on, you know, the front house engineer to make everything balance and can count on everything working out and being great. And I, that's beautiful too. And I love doing that, but doing that for like one or two months could get maybe, you know, I wouldn't say boring, but might there might not be the spark that like inspires you night after night. So those pieces might be done is my point. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're recorded and it's a pop tune, the beauty is that they work because there's so all these great elements that are tracked and recorded and mixed and they sound a certain way and there's a shape and there's a melody and there's a form and that's when they're done. You know, it's like they're they're perfect, you know, or they're they're what they are and they work great because that's the way they are. And that's when they're done. Some tunes uh, aren't done because, you know, they develop night after night. Yet, yes, the, the structure is done. The bones are done. But it's not really done because it's approached from a different emotional standpoint night after night or... Uh, or or even sonic standpoint every room is different every audience is different you know you play differently when people are like two feet from the stage versus you're playing a festival and there might be literally 30 feet between you and a barrier and then people you know so you're always gonna it's always gonna be different uh a different way to approach the piece uh, if there is something, a way to like navigate the song, uh, if it's if it's if it can be different night to night, that's always going to affect the way that something is uh, is interpreted. So again, I don't I'm not sure if it's ever really done unless it's like set in stone and you're playing the tracks and it's mixed a certain way, and you know people's parts never change. So yeah. What's the status of Dub Trio? The status of the Dub Trio is we, the last full length we did, um, I think it was released in 2019, and we toured that that whole year. We did a couple like U.S. runs. We did a headline run. We were out with Incubus, and then we did, um, you know, we went to Japan and we did uh, Europe, and and then. We literally played the last two shows we played uh, were we did uh, New Year's and DC with uh, Coco Bordello, I think, for those cats. And then COVID hit. And um, so obviously we didn't do any more touring. And then over COVID, we did a single, maybe 2021, um, remotely. Everyone tracked remotely and we mixed it remotely. And we had a, a good friend. Uh, Benji Dredd, who sings in the band Skindred, he actually sang vocals on it. It was a cover of a Heine Kamozi tune. So we released a song about a year ago uh, uh, remotely, uh, a single, which we've never really done before. But because everyone lives in different places, you know, we all lived in New York when we when we first started up. Um, like Dave, the guitar players, and Charlotte, and Stu is... Stu's in LA and I'm in Cleveland. Um, it's really hard and financially difficult to meet in a place to rent all the gear. Cause it's, it's not like we could just get together in someone's basement. There's a lot of gear. 
that is required to make the music sound the way it sounds. Um, not to mention time um, to find to get together. And, you know, I feel like everyone's in a place where we're sort of, you know, doing what we've been doing individually over the past two years through the pandemic, which is, you know, sort of not dub trio. So the, I guess the status of it is we have a plan to write and focus on it starting in 2023 for another album, which would be, I think, the eighth album that we've done, sixth, seventh, or eighth album. So nothing's happening and hasn't, no touring's happening. It hasn't since the pandemic. Other than that single, there'll probably be a two-year gap and then hopefully start writing in 2023 to record maybe sometime that year, hopefully. And then that, you know, because, you know, these days you got to like have an album or something to tour behind. Um, so, I mean, we could just try to like go out there and play like a Europe tour because I feel like a, a, we spend so much time as a band touring Europe uh, that our fan base is a little bigger and more developed there than it is in the U.S. Even though we put a lot of time in, in the beginning, uh, opening up for a lot of great bands. I still feel like we developed more as a band uh, from a tour standpoint in Europe than we did in the U.S. So we could probably do a Europe run and maybe make some dough or just, you know, get some momentum. But I feel like we won't really probably do anything until we get another album under our belts and probably next year. So that's does, what that, does that group write any differently? Do you write collectively or is it everyone brings their own compositions? Um We've been writing collectively the last couple records. People might come in with ideas, riffs, but they're always developed as a group. Mm-hmm. And that group, even from the beginning, what's interesting about that group is we really try to com- we really try to compose and produce the pieces very much in the vein of the way traditional dub was recorded, like. We might have a song, uh, uh, like, a, like a layout of a, an arrangement, ABC or ABABC or whatever it is. Um, so when we do go in to record, we might lay down all the tracks, like literally play start to finish. And then really the arrangement or the production informs the way the composition is. So like everything's recorded, whether it's the tape or in the box. And then we do the, we do the arrangement post-production like an engineer or a dub producer would do in the way that they're adding effects to tracks, they're muting tracks, they're, you know, they're, you know, playing the faders, dropping things in and out, like really approaching it on like the composition on the mixing board or even in the box, whether you're taking out or muting things in there, or drawing in automation for effects. We really try to approach that band compositionally from a standpoint of being true to what dub was from the, from the genesis of that music. Like really, which is what it was is the, it was really the birth of the remix. These guys were taking pop tunes Jamaican pop tunes, which are really pop tunes from like early R&B and jazz, U.S. tunes. So they were recording those in Jamaica 
And then a producer would take the four track or two track or eight track, put it on a, you know, a reel to reel, put it on a mixing board. And they would usually mute a vocal or not have the vocal be prominent, but focusing on the drum and the bass or the arrangement of the instruments. And then just bringing those thing in and playing the, the mute button or the faders in the mixing board or the aux ends or the EQ. And so approaching it in terms of playing the playing the mixing board to inform, inform the composition from what the what the uh, what the actual tracks were, what the bass tracks were. So we've tried to keep that as much as possible. Not every tune is that way, but a lot of records really are go that way when we uh, when we mix and produce. Uh, we start with the the bass tracks and then really uh, compose. Uh, on the mixing board or post that informs the uh, the the composition, if you will. But you know, we we do write individually and bring bring something together to a group, and then develop it collectively. Whether it's in like a rehearsal studio for a week before we go into a session, which is sort of the way it's been the past two records, because we've all lived in different cities cities the, over the past two records, so we come together in LA for the last record for a week or in New York in a rehearsal room for a week and developed our compositions and then gone to the studio and recorded it. So, but in the early days, it was like, we were all in the same city. We we're all in Brooklyn or New York. So we would develop them together in practice rooms over maybe a couple months. But, uh, you know, the means of just being in different cities and uh, justified, you know, a different end sort of like we'd have to, kind of get it done in a week, run a rehearsal studio and work it all out and then go right to record. But once they're recorded and mixed a certain way, again, those tunes are different night to night. There's different cues that cue certain sections. And things might go on a little longer. Arcs might be different. or So there is a different way of interpret, interpreting these tunes night to night, which keeps it fresh, you know, for, again, for a listener someone who's seen the band 10 times or as us who played the songs a hundred times, you know? How do you handle the, the dubbing aspect live? The dubbing aspect live is done all, all on stage as a group. So even when we started, you know, if you go see a, a band, a reggae band, uh, even from back, back when, even to date, 95% of bands or any, any dubbing, any effect sounds and stuff that's being done to manipulate the instruments are usually done by the front of house engineer. They're throwing the effects or doing those things <clears throat> from front of house. To me, that never really made sense. I mean, it makes sense and it's cool, but like as a dub band, it never made sense to me because as a band on stage, it's really hard to react to what the front of house engineer is doing if he throws a delay on. And usually you're not getting the delay sounds that are going through the front of house that the audience is hearing. You're not usually hearing that on, on your monitor mix, whether it's in ears or in your monitor. So how can you react musically as a dub group to what someone else is doing compositional? So... So having said that, we all 
have sort of um, a bunch of effects and microphones on the drums or the bass and the guitar, because it's a guitar, bass, drums, ensemble, trio. We all have a bunch of uh, pedals, because there's no tracks in that band. I mean, I do play sampler, and there might be like some samples that we play, whether it's, you know, a, 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 like a, not really a loop, but maybe like a, a vocal line or like a, like a, like something we can't really cover, like a one bar thing that we, we can't do. So other than that, it's usually mics on drums or guitar or bass through pedals that we manipulate in real time. So in other words, say I'm playing a groove, I have a bunch of, I have like a pedal board on my left. I can throw on a spring reverb on the drums, play to it again. So obviously the bass player, Stu Brooks and the guitar player, Dave Holmes, they have the drum effects in their monitor mix so they can react to you know, to what I do. So if I hit a spring reverb, Dave might say, oh, Joe just hit the spring reverb. He doesn't always do it. It's not always in the same place. So then, or, or Stu, I hear he's doing that. I'm going to drop out. It's like as if the monitor, as if like the, the engineer and the studio producer, whether it's, you know, someone like the Roots guys, like Scientist or King Tubby, they hit the mute on the bass and threw up the spring reverb on the drums. We do that by listening on stage. Or if I do a big drum fill and hit a crash with an effect on it, and I catch the cymbal and catch the tail of the, the delay, that might cue maybe a rhythm thing. So I'll drop out, let the tail of the cymbal go. Dave knows he's just going to chuck over that because it's like that might be what would happen if we were mixing it. So a lot of it is listening on stage, and we do all the effect uh, and all the sounds that you hear on stage. That being said, the way it's presented from a mix standpoint, and I'm, I'm talking in terms of the way things feel, because with Dub Trio, it's not all Roots, 70s, style dub it's literally that band has become sort of like a metal dub band almost like metal like in terms of like mashuga metal and so like kind of like riff based odd meter but also if you were to juxtapose that with like king tubby and scientist you know so it's this really interesting uh blend of the two so at one point, maybe say the X A section of a tune is this really heavy, super distorted guitars, really driven bass, almost like you want the click, you know, 7K, you know, whatever, like quarters on the bass drum, wooden beaters. You want that sort of thing going on on the mix, and then boom, all of a sudden it drops out into a thing, and then you're into this spacey really deep dub thing so maybe the maybe the maybe the you know the the hopefully the mix engineer if we if we take someone on tour they know the tune so maybe they do the thing where they oh they all of a sudden go to the outside kick or they may have a setting where they they hit a button and it changes the eq curve of the of the of the of the of the, of the kick drum or 
you know, the bass player, Stu, he might click off the distortion and all of a sudden go to a different channel. It's really sort of rootsy, stubby. Dave clicks off the distortion and all of a sudden he's into this layer thing where he's building like layers of layers of like, you know, spacey Ebo guitar. So there's all these timbre moves that change, um, you know, in the way that it's mixed. So the mix engineer is important in terms of sonically the way it's um, the way it sounds and feels, but they're not making any dub moves. That's all done in real time on stage as a trio. So because we know, again, it's a language. We built up this language within the piece as a band. We know how to react if someone does something and it's all done on stage as a group, as a group mm. in real time, you know? So are you running your own set of mics to go into your pedal board or is it some sort of a set? Yeah, it's all, it's all mics. For me, my, my, my setup is really pretty basic. Like even like if I'm playing, like when we were, cause Doug Trio was the backing artist for Modest Yahoo for many years. And, you know, Modest Yahoo has like sort of like, as much as it's like pop music, there's a lot of improv in that. But we were still doing the dub trio aesthetic and approach with that music. So <clears throat> even with birth or an improvised gig, I my, my setup is really pretty basic. I have a mixer and maybe like sort of like a little phrase sampler or an SPDSX. And then all that's going into the mixer and then I'll have effect sends where I'm running an, a loop of a, of a, a send of a, a different effects, usually guitar pedals. Um, and so I can choose to affect either microphone lines in the mixer, or I could choose to affect, you know, say I just plug like a phone, I'm doing an improvised gig. I have a phone going into the mixer. I can affect the phone, if I'm playing sounds on the phone, or if I loop something on the phone, I can use that effect send as an aux send and take my pedals and affect the phone. Or if I have the SPXX going in the mixer, I can affect, or not, the uh, use that effect send to affect the mixer. So it's mics on the drums going into the mixer with effect send of usually a chain of uh, guitar pedals that I can add effects to also, there's EQ. I can EQ these things to do something different. If I want to take a microphone and I want to have some like distortion, but I want it to be like a really something, I'll take, you know, for instance, this might be a, a little experimental, but I'll take the mic, I'll hit the floor, Tom, I'll put the mic right on the drum, I'll throw up the distortion or the gain on the on the line, and I'll crank the low the lows on the EQ to where I get this really 60, 80 hertz, this sub frequency, 40 hertz, but maybe there's gain on it. Maybe there's like some, some saturation or some color that might bring out overtones. Because what the beautiful thing is about drums and distortion is there's so many overtones on a drum that you could just play with overtones in the way you mess with EQ or the way you mess with like. Uh, distortion and it brings out all these beautiful overtones that a snare drum that a tom has 
So again, yeah, going back to it, it's mics on drums, mixed into a mixer, effects in with pedals. And then usually if I'm doing, depending on the gig, I'll have a SPSX triggering phrase samples or sounds just like one shots. Um, and I also have a little like phrase mixture, which, which basically I use them, the phrase sampler rather, which is I'll use for like, again, sounds or taking a loop in real time of the drums and kind of affecting the loop or, uh, yeah, that's, that's really, it's not really that complex. Does the, does the effects ever get out of control? Like I- sometimes, but that can, you know, you can play with that. Usually like if they're getting out of control, it's because they're going through a wedge. So if I'm not playing a gig where I'm not on in-airs, that, that can be more pronounced than if I'm, at, if I'm on in-airs. Um, usually if, if nothing from the mics are feeding back into a wedge, if I'm on in-airs, there usually isn't that problem. If, it's, if I'm doing a tour where it's like a throw-and-go or if I, it's a tour where there aren't in-airs, they can get out of control. But then you kind of learn... Like for me, I know that four or 500 might tend to feedback because that's sort of the resonance of like the snare drum and where that sort of rings out. So I'll have the monitor engineer take a dip out. We're all just here like, yo, 5K is really ringing out in this room. Just notch that out or 200 is really taking off the low mids or whatever. So maybe we could just either take a small curve or really pull it out tight. they can get out of control, so you can choose to play with it and have fun with it. <laughs> or if it's not something you can work with, maybe to help, you know, have the monitors in there help you, like, keep it under control. A lot of times, you know, if you're working with a monitor engineer and they're just, you know, on the flyer or, like, a house guy, especially with Dub Trio, speaking of, like, you know, front of house guy, if you, like, you don't have your own guy, they hear all this like sonic stuff coming from the stage. And sometimes, yeah, you know, sometimes you want 5k to just ring out and like to be really aggressive and like, kind of like shocking mm-hmm. and they'll just freak out because they don't know. And, they'll, they'll, and it's like, well, fuck, man, <laughs> that's the idea. That's what you're going for. You're going for this, like this shocking, like thing. And you know, it's going to come out, but like, so, yeah, it can get out of control and it can be intentional sometimes as a sensational effect, as an emotional thing, and sometimes not. And you got to kind of try to rein it in and work with, like, you know, whoever's doing sound, whether it's monitor or in front of house. But um, it can get out of control, less so with in ears because there's not stuff ringing back, going into, not like sort of a feedback loop going on stage, but it can be fun to play with it a bit. If it does, sometimes it's fun, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the kit you were using with Birth on this run. It was a pretty unique setup. Yeah, so that band, I had a, a small 16-inch kick, sort of tuned, wide open. You know, there's a pillow in there that I can, like, shimmy, mm. like kind of like either touching one head, batter head, or touching the front head. Or not, you know, you trying to, I tend to like sort of read sort of the room, you know, there was, you know, a coded head on that. And then I think there was like a faux Evans, like the faux calfskin, uh, that 56, whatever that head is on the 
non-batter head. So that's pretty. That's tuned pretty open and pretty low. And I'll try to sort of choose where or if the pillow inside, just by sort of tilting the drum, where where it lives on the head. So that's sort of a 16-inch kit or kick. And um, the floor tom, you know, um, that that's like a master's pearl. That's a master's custom, like '90s. Like uh, that's again, that's coded. That's sort of also tuned pretty wide open, pretty low, um, sort of like in the same vein as the kick drum, mm-hmm. kind of like not no real muffling. I mean, depending on, the, again, the room, I might put a little tape or a moon gel just on the edge, but I really go for that line to be kind of like wide open and just ringing out and like powerful sort of thing. The snare drum, 14 by five and a quarter, that, that's, also sort of like uh, that that sort of calfskin, faux calfskin head. Also tuned wide open, on a, more of like a jazz approach. Beautiful thing is, again, there's, there's all those overtones that are happening. Uh, die cast hoops on that drum. So you can really, if I want to crack a backbeat, you know, it's really, you know, it's really like open for that and uh, can project um the, the snares tune, you know, pretty open, so there's a lot of good response. And then I have like a 10 inch tom with the, uh, you know, uh, single ply coated head. That's a 10 by I want to say four. Um, that I, that's also a snare drum, but I can also choose to keep it uh, a tom, sort of tune pretty high. So in, I guess if you're thinking like, melodically that tan's really like cranked up so it could be a tom there really isn't much resonance because it's a small drum and it's cranked up pretty high so it's kind of firecracker and short but it's like that's the highest pitch then the snare drum without the snare drum might be the next lowest floor tom pretty low pretty open and thuddy boomy not like thud rock but there's definitely a tone to it but like uh, has resonance, and then the the kick drum is pretty uh, pretty open and ringing. So they're really o- open singing drums in term in terms of like jazz, but not so bop tuning. You know, and it's not like cranked really high. You know, it's not like a Tony kick drum where you're like really getting like a fundamental of like a high tune kick drum. Or you know, that's fun to play too, but like that doesn't really work. Uh, with, I mean, it could work, and I do have played the, the, that tuning, like kind of like a backline kit with Birth. Um, if you go to a jazz club and let a, I'm going to play a backline kit. Like for instance, on that gig you saw at Cohen Alma, there was a backline kit that that sounded great. You know, it, it was perfect for jazz and for Bob stuff. And I could have tuned it to be the way I wanted to sound, or just played it the way it is and that could be kind of fun and inspiring. Like if you play a kit that's in a different tuning that, that you don't always play, it might inform decisions like in a different way of approach. And that's cool. But because that was near the end of the tour and like, I, I have been playing my own kit and I know John, the, the owner, he was like, man, if you want to play your own kit, just we could just strike this kit. And it was like, no, I, I do want to play my own kit. And like, if it's not a problem. So we, you know, I played my own drums that night, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot to choose from there. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of choices, like the really low, 
booming kick. And if I want to be sort of tight, I might bury the head in the beater. And if I want to ring, I just might not hit it. You know, it's harder. Mm. Just hit it and pull off of it. Um, so I have a lot of like options in terms of like pitch. You know, I could like choose the high to the low low, but also they're really ringing out. So if I want that really open as much as you can get like a bottom thing with like a 16 inch kit it's really pretty boomy and low mm. and open so i like the palette that it gives the you know uh orchestrally i can the high highs and low lows and they're open or i could approach them and get them tight put a wall on a snare drum or a metal thing or whatever you know so we're getting close to the end of the hour here, but I I wanted to ask about how does all of this creative and open-ended playing inform or not inform when you just have to play songs? Hmm. <laughs> Good point. Interesting. Well, let's see. When I just have to play songs, when I just have to play songs, I want to serve the song and the purpose of the gig. Like when I moved back to Cleveland, you know, and I was still doing quite a bit of touring. And then once the pandemic hit, like that last year, I started playing some wedding band gigs with the wedding band uh, here in Cleveland. And, um, you know, all great players. And it's like, I'd never done that in my entire career. I mean, I played some GB gigs, like playing like straight ahead stuff, maybe a big band, maybe occasionally like covers, but playing like wedding band songs that are really pop tunes that I've heard and, you know, people have heard it a zillion times, but never really like learned all of them. And they're all, they're all perfect. Going back to like when a song's done, they're pop tunes, you know, and they sound great and the mix is right and the sound is right and the approach is right. And the, the tempo's right, and the feel's right. So when it comes time to playing songs, I really try to give the attention to what the song is and requires, whether it's an original or a cover, you know. So that might mean in terms of, like, the tempo. Like, a certain melody works at a certain tempo. A certain groove, a bass line, works within a certain, you know, BPM. You know, you can play things four or five BPMs here or there, but a certain melody is not going to sit a certain way 10 to 20 BPMs faster or slower. It works within a certain framework. So honor the tempo of a song. Honor the way that I approach it, the way I'm hitting the drums. You know, I'm not going to play... Uh, at last by Etta James, the way I'm going to play, play that funky music whiteboard, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or it doesn't have to be a, a cover. It could be, or, you know, it's the way I'm playing a cumbia tune, you know, with bells and like hitting the side of the rims. I'm not going to play, you know, uh, a King Tubby song or a Stevie Wonder tune, the same with the same sort of swing. They swing is a, is a, is a way I would approach it they all have their own uh, way of swinging, you know, like if you're playing like a hip hop song, like a Dilla tune or, you know, 
a Fuji's tune or whatever, that every track has its own swing, the way the bass line is or the way the vocal is or the way whatever is. So you kind of like trying to honor the swing of the tune. And it can be straight, you know, it can be like a straight Bob Seger tune, you know, like just straight on Kenny Arnoff style playing versus whatever, you know, a Mick Fleetwood or whoever. So honoring the tempo, honoring the swing, honoring the approach and the way that you hit the drums, like from a velocity standpoint, from a volume standpoint, or even from an attitude, you know, the way you, the way you, you're convincing to the band and to the dance floor, to the audience, you know, the, the feeling you want to convey. So I think that that's the way I approach tunes, you know, and, and the other way, again, if I'm thinking in terms of production when I'm playing a song, it's the treatment of, because uh, that's more of on a live tip. When I'm playing a song, it's the treatment is, because I love the studio and I love recording, it's more about the treatment of the way the drums are treated with what's, uh, how they're tuned, what's dampening them, the way, again, the way I'm hitting, and then the miking choices or the, or the way the mics, what, what they run into, whether it's compression or EQ. So it's how, the, how I'm hitting the drums and how that reacts to the mics, the drums themselves, and then how they're treated or tuned. So it really goes down to what does the song call for? You know, what is, that is sort of informs my, the way that I approach a tune, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean it's it kind of basic, but it, yeah, it seems like it's all, I mean, from the beginning you were talking about timbre and dynamics and it's all, intertwined right whether you're improvising or playing yeah i mean dynamics tell a story you know you want to tell stories you know i feel like it's great to be loud and aggressive all the time and be and that's a thing too but not too many you can't it's just like talking you know there's pauses and there's rises when you're talking to somebody someone says something you say something back there's an arc and a cadence to someone's voice you want to be aggressive and make a point you kind of get a little louder you know and that to me is what makes music interesting so yeah well last question that i ask almost every guest what was your first snare drum nice nice my first snare drum was my first snare drum was a rogers dinosonic Whoa! That my nice. dad had. Yeah, he was a drummer, and had which I still have. I don't have the snare drum, sadly, but I do have his first kit that he gave me, which is a Cleveland Eras Rogers, Pink Champagne, twelve, thirteen, sixteen, twenty kit, and it's a little bit in disarray. But I still do pull them out from time to time and play them. Nice. I need to get like some of the bearing edges fixed, but I, they're still playable. But that was my first snare drum. That the, the kit, the, the snare that he had on that kit. Wow, was it a metal yeah. one or a wood shell? It was a metal one. What happened to it? I don't know. Man. <laughs> 
I may have given it to somebody to like a punk rock days, just giving sharing drums, you know, like mm-hmm. just disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Sadly. Well, it's not Sadly. a bad first drum to start with. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything coming up that we should let people know about? Um, I know I want to suggest everyone check out the, the, the birth records all the dub trio stuff, but what else should people take a look at? I don't know. I mean, I have a bunch of different, you know, original bands, birth dub trio. I have a band called Togishi, which is a completely improv group. Uh, Togishi, which is the guy who polishes the, uh, the samurai sword. So so Togishi is a band. There's another band I play in called Yellowstone Apocalypse, which is like a duo guitar. It's sort of like a doom metal thing. I have a really fun band. There's no real music to check out yet, but it's called, Hello 3D, that's a local Cleveland group, bunch of great cats, does like cumbia stuff, which is really fun. Getting into cumbia stuff lately. You know, whatever. A bunch of different things. So check out those bands. Birth, you know, we have we released an album somewhat recently. I mean starting a tour on that actually about two years old or whatever, but uh, check out Dub Trio again. Dub Trio is a fun and it's just, I mean, it's just a lot of albums with Dub Trio, so it's start to like the last album, 2019. But uh, yeah, I'm easy to find. I'm around, so I appreciate you having me on, Mike. Oh, yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, my friend. All right, that's it for this week's episode. Once again, if you like the show, please head over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere that you get this podcast. Drop us a five-star review. Type some words in there, some comments, share the episode. We want to get this show into the ears of more drummers around the world, as many drummers around the world as possible. So that's all I ask. Just give us a review, five-star rating. Much appreciated. See you next week.